So as they are doing that, let's turn to our passage for this morning. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Okay, let's begin in verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Scalia Speaks is the title of a book which is a collection of speeches given by former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And from what I can tell, Justice Scalia was a deeply religious man, a devout and practicing Roman Catholic, and I believe a firm believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior. And one speech in that book is entitled, Not to the Wise, the Christian as Cretan. And that's spelled C-R-E-T-I-N, Cretan, a Christian as Cretan. A Cretan, he explains is a person of deficient mental capacity. They are simple-minded, uneducated, unsophisticated, easy to command, and looked down upon by the sophisticated elite. Justice Scalia makes the case that, in one sense, we, as Christians, are looked upon as Cretans. He says the sophisticated might believe in a benevolent God so long as he doesn't intrude too ridiculously into the world with things like miracles, or as long as he doesn't limit human behavior in inconvenient ways. He says the sophisticated might believe in Jesus Christ as a son of God, because, you know, we're all children of God, after all, and uh, might believe in some sense that he triumphed over death, after all, in some sense his message lives on. But to believe that Jesus is God, that he was born of a virgin, that he actually performed miracles, and that his death was the payment for our sins, and that he physically rose from the grave and calls us to change our behavior and give up our agenda for our lives, for His 
agenda. Justice Scalia says, those who adhere to these traditional Christian beliefs are regarded by many today as, well, the simple-minded Cretans. But this ought not to come as a surprise. Remember when the Apostle Paul was preaching in Athens, the ancient center of wisdom and intellectualism? They were curious and they were listening to him as to what he had to say until he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Luke tells us at that point, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. A complete blow off. Well, Paul discusses this at length in his letter to the Corinthians. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the message of the gospel, in the message of the cross and the resurrection, what appears as to the world as total nonsense and foolishness is from God's perspective the ultimate display of wisdom and power. And this is what Paul impresses upon the Christians and Corinth. He says, to the world, the cross and resurrection is foolishness. The gospel is foolishness. The ways of God are foolishness. All of that is just for the simple-minded, the Cretans. But to the believer, he says, regardless of what the world may think, the cross and resurrection are the power of God, the wisdom of God, and the glory of God. To the believer, nothing in the world makes sense but the cross and the resurrection. And this is what we celebrate today. So I've entitled our passage and this message, borrowing from Justice Scalia, Cretans, all of us. Let's uh, put this passage in its context just briefly. If you're familiar at all with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that there were a lot of problems that Paul had to address that were going on in the church in Corinth. And one of the many problems that he addresses is this. The leaders in the church were seeking to gather personal following. And those followings were based on the eloquence of their speech and their oratorical skills. It was the kind of speech that was popular and appreciated in the Greek and Roman culture of the time. And they were attempting to dress up the gospel in the culture of Greek wisdom and philosophy so as to make it more acceptable to the Greek mind. But in doing so, to make it more acceptable, they were minimizing the cross and the resurrection. Look what Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 1, the verse immediately preceding our passage that begins at verse 18. This is what he said in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ 
should not be made void. Cleverness of speech. See what he's talking about here? Means to make the gospel less offensive and more acceptable to the secular mind. But to do so, Paul says, to do that is to make the cross of Christ void. The gospel is robbed of its power when we do away with or when we minimize the cross and the resurrection. And so now he addresses specifically in our passage, beginning at verse 18, he addresses specifically the centrality of the cross. And implicit in this, of course, is the resurrection because the two events, the crucifixion and the resurrection, are inseparable. And he shows that in what appears to be weakness or folly or foolishness to the world is in reality the very wisdom and power of God. So let's begin by looking at the foolishness of the cross. Verse 18. The word of the cross... The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's the word of the cross? Well, it's the message of the crucified Messiah and Savior. The message that Jesus died on a cross. He was crucified, Roman crucifixion. But he did so as a sacrifice for our sins. And it very clearly indicates the centrality of the death of Christ in the preaching of the, God, preaching of the apostle. And Paul then relates the message of the cross to two categories of people. Two categories. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And so literally, he divides the world into two categories. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Now, those who are perishing literally in the process of perishing, Paul, this is Paul's standing expression for the destiny of the unsaved. And as much as we may not like the idea, there are those who will ultimately and eternally perish in separation from God. The other category of people that those who are perishing. But the other category is, he says, those who are being saved, us who are being saved, those who have faith, those who in faith have accepted and embraced this crucified Savior. And we are being saved in the sense that we are now saved, a present reality, but our salvation will be made complete yet in the future. So these two categories of people receive the message of a crucified and risen Savior, they receive that message radically different. To those who are perishing, that message, Paul says, is foolishness. This says that the very idea that the salvation of the world is accomplished through the death of a Jewish peasant on the cross who then rises from the dead that this message is foolishness. It's foolishness that a God of the universe would ever concoct 
such a plan as this or be constrained to work within such parameters. It's foolishness to suggest that God would ever even need such a plan. The very idea of the cross was repugnant to the ancient world. And the idea that God had to be crucified to save us from sin is to the world lunacy, madness. Something for only the simple-minded cretins. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Imagine today, okay? In present time today, you hear on CNN or National Geographic about a young man in Africa who has gained a large following. And he, there are claims of him doing miracles. And his followers think he is a god. But the African authorities consider him a troublemaker and manage to bring charges against him they put him to death. His followers desert him. But later, they begin to say that they had seen him and he's alive and he's gone into heaven. That ha- Imagine hearing that story today. Okay, you, you hear a report on it. CNN, National Geographic. And we're supposed to believe that today? That this guy from Africa is the Savior of the world? Right. But that's what it was like for those in the Roman Empire to believe that a Jewish peasant was God. And this Jewish peasant was put to death in Roman execution. And we're supposed to believe that This man is God? Seems like foolishness, doesn't it? Let me expand on this. Ken Woodward is the former religious editor for Newsweek magazine. And he wrote this in Newsweek simply as an observation, not as an evangelical. Just by way of observation, he wrote this. This is what he said. Clearly, the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus, every other religious figure or religion is what he means. He says, in Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less as a criminal, as Jesus did. In Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah himself. Hindus can only accept a Jesus who passes into peaceful samadhi, a yogi who escapes the degradation of death. And the figure of a crucified Christ says, and he quotes a Buddhist here, is a very painful image to me, says the Buddhist. It does not contain joy or peace, and this does not do justice to Jesus. I'm still quoting Ken Woodward. He says this, There is, in short, no room 
in other religions for a Christ who experiences, who experiences the full burden of mortal existence. And hence, there is no reason to believe in Him as the divine Son whom the Father resurrects from the dead. Continuing, Ken Woodward. The image of a benign Jesus has universal appeal, and that should come as no surprise. That most of the world cannot accept the Jesus of the cross should not surprise either. End quote. The whole idea of a cross to the unsaved world, regardless of what religion, is craziness. It just doesn't make sense. It's only for Cretans. But the, uh, there's another group here. Those who are being saved, to those it is the power of God, the apostle says. Those who are saved see the cross and resurrection for what it is. And in an, we, we, we see it in an entirely different light. The very power of God at work to accomplish salvation, to satisfy the wrath of a holy God, to defeat the power of evil, and to gain victory over death and to transform lives. This is the foolish, to be foolishness. But in reality, it is the very power of God. Only Cretans would believe this. And then we move on to the foolishness of the wisdom of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. In, in this verse, Paul gives evidence from the Old Testament that this is the way that God works, okay? His ways are the opposite of the wisdom of the world. And he's quoting here Isaiah 29, 14, and it refers here in this verse to the wisdom of the leaders of Jerusalem. God told them to trust Him as they were facing an invasion from the Assyrians. But they said, no, 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 we can't do that. We need to make an alliance with Egypt. That was their wisdom. We'll make an alliance with Egypt. <laughs> and Assyria attacked them because of that very alliance that they made with Egypt. So much for their great wisdom. The point is this. God says His ways are different than the wisdom of the world. In the eyes of the world, His wisdom it looks like foolishness. Yet it is His wisdom that will triumph over the wisdom and the wise of the world. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? These are a series of rhetorical questions. He's speaking here to those who see and understand the wisdom and power of God in the gospel. Speaking to us. And the wise man and the scribe and the debater, these are the learned and the scholars and the intellects of the Greek and the Romans and the Jews as well. And Paul says, where's their great wisdom now? Meaning, let them present the case for their wisdom and philosophical ideas compared to the message of the gospel. Which makes more sense? 
The gospel clearly makes more sense. The gospel alone deals adequately adequately with the state or condition of man and the attributes of God. It's not a matter of the gospel not making sense. It's not a matter of it being irrational or nonsensical or of it being of ancient religious beliefs. When they are studied, when they are seen, the cross and the resurrection, they make great sense. It is a matter of accepting what we might call the biblical paradigm of God and His nature and the nature of humanity. It's ultimately a matter of submitting one's mind and heart to the gospel and accepting it. For what it is. All of the ways of the wisdom of the world, the way of the intellect, the ways of the elite, the what Justice Scalia calls sophisticated, respectable ways, God has shown them to be nothing with respect, with disrespect to knowing God and the truly important matters of eternity. All of that wisdom cannot lead a person to God. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, excuse me, through its wisdom did not come to know God. It's God's wisdom. It's God's wise plan that the world does not and cannot know Him through its own wisdom. Why? Because knowing God is not merely a function of the intellect. It's not merely a product of philosophy or a matter of credentials. No one can know God simply through those things, the wisdom of the world. The world does not know God through its vaunted and exalted wisdom. Now, this may be a good point to clarify, a, a, a good time to clarify. In all of this, I'm talking about the wisdom of the world does not know God. I'm not saying, nor does Scripture suggest, that Christianity is anti intellectual, that it is against study, that it is against science the environment, any of the academic disciplines, the wisdom of the world refers to what they say and what they believe about God. The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. And since it has not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached To save those who believe. It is God's purpose in the seemingly foolish message of the crucified Savior and the one who rises from the dead to make himself known and provide the way for people to know him. To save those who simply believe. That's the wisdom of God. So the purposes of God are in intentional opposition 
through the wisdom and the wise and the philosophers of the world. The wisdom of God seems like foolishness. Indeed, to the believing mind, to the unbelieving mind, it is total foolishness. But in reality, what appears to the world as total foolishness is the very wisdom of God. But only Cretans would believe this. Then we see the foolishness of a crucified Savior. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Paul is dealing here with the nature of man in his search for God. And he uses the mind of the Jew and the mind of the Greek as representative mindsets of those who seek for God. He said the Jews, this is one mindset, the Jews ask for signs. Well, he's referring to here the Jewish history. What was Jewish history? Well, it was all about God's miraculous intervention into Jewish history to show His power and glory to His people. We think of the plagues in Egypt and the opening of the Red Sea and the stopping of the River Jordan. And we think of Elijah and his miracles and many, many other miracles of God, interventions of God throughout Israel's history. These were all witnesses to the power of God. But also, in addition to that, the Jewish mindset that seeks signs is their expectation of a Messiah who would come in power and glory and on their behalf to deliver them with power from the yoke of the Romans. The Jews expected God to act in sending that Messiah with a cosmic display of power. It would be a sign for all. And you know, some people today, Jews and others, demand that God display his mighty power in a way that they think he should do it they're demanding a sign same thing bring immediate peace to the nations where are you god how 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 can you be there and there be such war and, and 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 turmoil in the world heal all the diseases of the world restore all the broken relationships some people demand signs well if god would do that then I might believe in him. The Jews demand signs. Some people today demand signs. But then on the other hand, there are the Greeks. The Greeks search for wisdom. With their long tradition of philosophers, the Greeks, they try to reason their way to God. They would seek the logic of God. God had to fit their preconceived ideas of what a God should be and how a God should act. And a crucified God, and certainly one who rises from the dead, didn't fit their concept. Remember Paul in Athens mentioned the resurrection? They began to laugh. And for many people today... God has to fit their preconceived notion or idea of what God should be. They're okay with a God as long as that God is intellectually respectable 
and certainly a holy God of wrath punishing his sons for the sins of humanity and then that son rising from the dead would not fall within their purview of acceptability. So these are the basic two mindsets of natural humanity in approaching God. Show me, prove to me that you exist by a sign or I'll fashion a God according to what I think a God should be and that I'm fine with that God. (coughs) Verse 23, but in contrast to those two kinds of people, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, the Gentiles, foolishness. Paul says, our message is the crucified Messiah. We preach Christ crucified. Absolutely unthinkable. It's an oxymoron. It's a divine contradiction. You can have a Messiah or you can have a crucifixion, but you can't have them together in the same person. Makes no sense. To the Jews, demanding a display of God's power, Paul says, it's a stumbling block. Scandalous, unthinkable, it's offensive, it's repulsive. The Messiah cannot be of such weakness. Today, people want a sign. God cannot be that silent. So they reject Him. To the Gentiles, those likening God according to their wisdom, the crucified Messiah is foolishness, madness, not even plausible. It's intellectually repulsive to some kind of God that way. To think that the way to God is through an itinerant Jewish rabbi who ends up being crucified as a criminal and then rises from the dead. It's foolishness. Only Cretans believe such things. So you see, God didn't ask for their approval. (laughs) He has done it His way, which appears then and now as foolishness and nonsense. This is the foolishness of a crucified Savior. And that's... That's what the cross is to the unbeliever. And now Paul, in these final two verses, looks at it from the perspective of the believer. The foolishness of the ways of God. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That the ways of God are foolishness to the world does not mean that the ways of God are without power and wisdom. Here is God's answer to the, to the demands of humanity. To the Jews' demand for power and to the Greeks' demand for wisdom. To those who are called, that is to those who have been called to saving faith and have that belief, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want power? It's like Paul is saying, you want power? There's power in the cross. It's not weakness. It's power in the cross. To defeat Satan. To defeat the power of death. To restore all creation. You want a sign? Just look at the resurrection. What a magnificent display of power. 
Paul said, you want wisdom? There's wisdom in the cross. The cross, though seemingly foolish, seemingly foolish, is in reality a testimony to the very wisdom of God. Because in the cross, the holiness of God, the love of God, the justice of God are brought together in the only way possible for redemption when God Himself bears His own wrath for our sins through the substitutionary death of the God-man, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, that He might save us. You want wisdom? There's wisdom in the cross. It's the only way that humanity can have a relationship with God. That's the wisdom of God. Verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's speaking figuratively here because God has no foolishness and because God has no weakness. But it's exaggerated language to drive home the point that the greatest of human wisdom when compared to God's wisdom, is nothing. God's wisdom is so great that if God could have foolishness, His foolishness would be greater than all human wisdom put together. And God's power is so great that if He could have a weakness, His weakness would far exceed all of the strength and power of the world. So we are again confronted with the foolishness of the ways of God in what appears to be weakness to be crucified on a cross is the very power of God and what appears to be foolishness is the very wisdom of God so let's review what we've seen if all of this is true the foolishness of the cross the foolishness of the wisdom of God, the foolishness of a crucified Savior, the foolishness of the ways of God. What does this say about those who believe this? Are we not fools for Christ? This is the expression that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4. We are fools for Christ. We're Cretans, all of us. So this must be our identity. We are a people who believe in the foolishness of the message of the cross that God became a man, not a king, not a prince, but a peasant in a tiny and rebellious and remote country a long time ago. He lived a short while. He taught and preached and gathered some followers, but then was put to death. But his followers said he was raised, ascended into heaven, and that his death was God's way of restoring all creation. And we believe that this was the focal point and most significant, wonderful, and powerful event in all of history. That's how we see it. It's so clear to us. 
It makes so much sense to us. It is so convincing. And it has changed our lives. But for the most part, the world considers this and us absolute foolishness, nonsense, irrelevance, simple-mindedness, backwardness, and weakness. Cretans. All of us. But if we are going to be the church in the world, if we are going to be a faithful people to God, we must be a people of the cross. We must be a people that proclaim without apology that Christ died and that Christ is risen. We must be faithful to that message. We must live with the foolishness of the cross and the resurrection. To the world, weakness, foolishness. To us, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. We must not try to water it down, minimize it, apologize for it, or dress it up in some way to try to make it more acceptable, but in doing so, we rob it of its very power. Justice Scalia says this, It is my hope to impart to those already wise in Christ the courage to have their wisdom regarded as stupidity. Justice Scalia. So let us glory in the cross. Let us praise God for the resurrection. May we gladly bear its shame and reproach and foolishness. But may we always and ever be faithful to the message of the cross. The message of the Son of God crucified for our sins, raised to conquer death and give eternal life. It is the only message of forgiveness and grace and eternal life. This is our day today. This is what we celebrate today. Cretans, all of us, who believe that. Those whom God has called around the world, mocked by the world, but celebrating today with one voice, Christ is risen. That's what we celebrate today. It's a happy day for us Cretans. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And the celebration of this glorious truth that Christ is crucified for our sins and Christ is risen. And may we embrace this message today, Lord. Even though it may seem like foolishness, nonsense, absurdity to the world, May we be faithful to embrace this message. And Lord, we pray for all gathered here today 
for any that are not sure about this message. That maybe one time they believe, but they kind of walked away from it for any number of reasons. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to show them that this is your message that Christ did die on the cross and rise again and that is your wisdom and your power. May they come back to that message. Embrace it again today, Lord. Lord, for those here today that maybe have never yet come to that point that it has just seemed as foolishness to them. There's no reason for it, no need for it. May the Spirit of God show them today that this is the wisdom of God and the power of God in the crucified Savior and the risen Savior. And may they embrace this message today in faith to believe in Christ as their Savior and become a follower of Jesus. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God do a great work in the hearts of all those that you have brought here today. In Jesus' holy name.